Today, I am speaking with Yuval Noah Harari. Yuval has a PhD in history from the University of Oxford, and he lectures at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, uh, where he specializes in world history. His books have been translated into over 50 languages, and these books are Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, and his new book, which we discuss today, is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Yuval is rather like me in that he spends a lot of time worrying out loud. He's also a a long-term meditator. I don't know if there's a connection there. There was so much to talk about. There is much more in the new book than we touched, but we touched a lot. We actually started talking about the importance of meditation for his intellectual life. Uh, We talk about the primacy of stories, the need to revise our fundamental assumptions about human civilization and how it works, the current threats to liberal democracy, what a world without work might look like, universal basic income, the virtues of nationalism. Uh, You've all had some surprising views on that. The implications of AI and automation, and several other topics. So, without further delay, I bring you Yuval Noah Harari. Thank you. Thank you. So, and thank you to Rivers Cuomo. Uh, that's amazing. So, um, you've heard this from me before if you've been to an event or listened to events on a podcast, but I, so it may get old to hear, but it really doesn't get old to say. I can't tell you what an honor it is to put a date on the calendar and have you all show up. I mean, it's, it's just astonishing to me that this happened. So, thank you. And thank you to Yuval for coming out. It's, it's my amazing honor. to collaborate with you. Thank you. So, uh, Yuval, uh, you have these books that just <laughs> steamroll over all other books, and I know because I write books. So you, so you wrote Sapiens, which is kind of about the, the deep history of... of <laughs> yes, with a few fans which is really about the history of humanity. And then you wrote Homo Deus, which is about our far future. And now you've written this book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, which is, which is about the present. Uh, I can't be the only one in your publishing world who notices that now you have nothing left to write about. <laughs> <laughs> so good luck with that career of yours. <laughs> so, so how do you describe what you do? Because you're, you're a historian... I mean, one thing that you and I have in common is that we have a, a reckless disregard for the boundaries between disciplines. I mean, you, you just touch so many things that are not straightforward history. What, how do you think about your intellectual career at this point? Well, my definition of history is the his, that history is not the study of the past. It's the study of change, how things change. And uh, yes, most, most of the time you look at change in the, in the past, but in the end all the people who lived in the past are dead. And they don't care what you write or say about them. Um, If the past has anything to teach us, it should be relevant to the future and to the present also. Mm. 
So, um, but, but, you but you touch biology and, and the yeah, implications of technology and I, I follow the questions. Yeah. And the questions don't recognize these disciplinary boundaries. And as a historian, maybe the, the most important lesson that I've learned as a historian is that humans are animals. And if you don't take this very seriously into account, you can't understand history. Of course, I'm not a biologist. I also know that humans are a very special kind of animal. If you only know biology, you will not understand things like the rise of Christianity or the Reformation or the, or the Second World War. So you need to go beyond just uh, the, the, the biological basis. But if, right. if you ignore this, you can't really understand anything. Yeah, the, the other thing we have in common, which gives you, to my eye, a very unique slant on all the topics you touch, is an interest in meditation and, and a sense that our experiences in meditation have changed the way we, we think about problems in the world and, and questions like you know, just what it means to give a good, live a good life or even, the, even whether the question of the meaning of life is an intelligible one or a valid one or a one mm -hmm. that needs to be asked. How do you view the influence of, of the contemplative life on your, your intellectual pursuits? I, I couldn't have written uh, any of my books, either Sapiens or Homo Deus or 21 Lessons, without the experience of meditation, uh, partly because of just what I learned about the human mind. Uh, from observing the mind, mm. but also partly because you need a lot of focus in order to be able to summarize the whole of history into like 400 pages. <laughs> and meditation gives you this kind of, of ability to really focus. I mean, my understanding of at least the meditation that I practice is that the number one question is what is reality? What is really happening? to be able to tell the difference between the stories that the mind keeps generating about the world, about myself, about everything, and the actual reality. Right. And this is what I try to do when I meditate, and this is also what I try to do when I write uh, books, to help me and other people understand what is the difference between fiction and reality. Yeah, yeah, and I want to get at that difference because you use these terms in slightly idiosyncratic ways. So, like, so I think it's possible to either be confused about how you use terms like story and mm -hmm. fiction. For instance, just the way you talk about the primacy of fiction, the primacy of story, the way in which mm -hmm. our concepts that we think map onto reality don't really quite map onto reality, right? And yet they're, they're nonetheless important. That is, in a way that you, you don't often flag in your writing, a, a, a real meditator's eye view of what's happening here. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not, it's like you're, 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 you're giving people the epiphany that certain things are made up, like, like the concept of money, right? Like the, the idea that we have dirty paper in our pocket that is worth something, mm -hmm. right? That is a convention that we've all agreed about but it is a, it's an idea, it only works because we agree that it works. Mm -hmm. But you, the way you use the word story and fiction rather often seems to denigrate these things a little bit more than mm -hmm. I'm tempted to do when well, I talk I, about I them. I don't say that there is anything wrong with it. 
Uh, stories and fictions are, are a wonderful thing, especially if you want to get people to cooperate effectively. You yeah. cannot have a global trade network unless you agree on money. And you, can, you cannot have people playing football or baseball or basketball or any other game unless you get them to agree on rules that, quite obviously, we invented. They mm. did not come from heaven, they did not come from physics or biology, we invented them. And right. there is nothing wrong with people agreeing, accepting, uh, let's say for 90 minutes, the story of football, the rules of football, that if you score a goal, then this is the, the, goal, the goal of the whole game and, and, and so forth. The, the problem begins only when people forget that this is only a convention, this is only something we invented, and they start confusing it with mm. kind of, this is reality, this is the real thing. And in football, it can lead to people, to hooligans beating up each other or killing people uh, because of this invented game. And on a, on a higher level, it can lead to, you know, to world wars and genocides in the name of fictional entities like gods and nations and currencies that we've created. Now, there is nothing wrong with these creations as long as they serve us instead of us serving them. But wouldn't you acknowledge that there's a, a distinction between good stories and bad stories? Yeah, and certainly. The, the good stories are the, one, the ones that, that really serve us, that, that help people, that help other sentient beings uh, live a better life. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. I mean, of course, in, in, in real life, it, it's much more complicated to, to know what will be helpful and, and what not and so forth. But a good starting place is just to have this basic ability to tell the difference between fiction and reality, between our creations and what's, what's really out there, uh, especially when, for example, uh, you need to change the story, or a story which was very adapted to one condition mm. uh, is less adapted to a new condition, which is, for example, what I think is happening now with the story of the under, underground liberal democracy, that it was probably one of the best stories ever created by humanity. And it was very adapted to the conditions of the 20th century, but it is less and less adapted to the new realities of the 21st century. And in order to kind of reinvent the system, we need to acknowledge that to some extent, it is based on stories we have invented. Right, but so when you talk about something like human rights being a story or a fiction, mm -hmm. that seems like a, a story or a fiction that shouldn't be on the table to be fundamentally revised, right? Like, like that, that's where people begin to worry that to describe these things as stories or fictions is to suggest tacitly, if, I don't think you, you do this explicitly, that all of this stuff is made up and therefore it's all sort of on the same level, right? And, and yet there's a, clearly a distinction between, and it's a distinction you make in your book, between dogmatism and the other efforts we make to justify our stories, right? Mm -hmm. There's there are stories that are dogmatically asserted and, and religion has more than its fair share of these, but there are political dogmas, there are tri tribal dogmas of all kinds, you know, nationalism can be anchored to dogma. And the mode of asserting a dogma is, is to be 
doing so mm. without feeling responsible to counter arguments and demands for evidence and, and reasons why. Whereas with something like human rights, we can tell an additional story about why we value this convention, mm -hmm. right? Like we, uh, we don't have to, it doesn't have to be a magical story. It doesn't have to be that, that it, we were all imbued by our creator with these things. But we can give, we can talk for a long time without saying it's just so to justify that convention. Yeah, I mean, human rights is, 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 is a particularly problematic and also interesting case. First of all, because it's our story. I mean, we are very happy with you discrediting the stories of all kinds of religious fundamentalists and all kinds of tribes somewhere and ancient people, but not our story. Right, well, don't touch that. It depends what you mean by we. Because, uh, so yeah. I guess we, most of the people, I don't see anybody here. Yeah. It could be yeah. just empty chairs and, and, and recordings of laughter. But I assume that the, the people here, most of them, this is our story. The second thing is that we live in a moment when liberal democracy is, is under a severe attack. And this was not so when I wrote Sapiens. I felt much yeah. freer writing these things back in 2011, 2012. And now it's, it's much more problematic. And yes, I, I find myself, one of the difficulties of, of living right now, um, as an intellectual, as a thinker, that you kind of, I'm, I'm kind of torn apart by the uh, imperative to explore the truth, to follow the truth wherever it leads me, and the political realities of the present moment and the need to engage in, 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 in very important political battles. And this is one of the costs, I think, of what is happening now in the world, that um, it, it restricts our ability, our, our freedom, to truly go deep and explore the foundations of, of our, our, our system. And I, I still feel the importance of, of doing it, of questioning even the foundations of liberal democracy and of human rights, simply because I think that as we have defined them since the 18th century, they are not going to survive hmm. the tests of the 21st century. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's extremely unfortunate that we have to, to, enga to, to engage on this two-front battle that at the, at the same moment, we have to defend these ideas from people who look at them from the perspective of nostalgic fantasies, that they don't even, they want to go back from the 18th century. And at the same time, we have to also go forward and think what it means, uh, what, what the new scientific discoveries and technological developments of the 21st century really mean to the core ideas of what do, what, what do human rights mean when you st are starting to have superhumans? Do superhumans have superhuman rights? Um, what, what, is the, what does the right of freedom mean when we have now technologies that simply undermine the very concept of freedom? We kind of, when we created this whole system, not we, but somebody, mm. back no, in no, the 18th century. They did. <laughs> Back in the 18th and 19th century, we gave ourselves all kinds of philosophical discounts of mm. not really going deeply enough in some of the key questions 
Like, what do humans really need? And we settled for answers like, just follow your heart. Yeah. And this was, this was good enough. This is, this is Joseph Campbell. I blame Joseph Campbell for follow your bliss. <laughs> no, but, but follow your heart. The voter knows best. The customer is always right. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. All these slogans, mm. they were kind of, uh, of covering up from not engaging more deeply with the question of what is really human freedom and what do humans really need? Mm-hmm. And uh, in the, for the last 200 years, it was good enough. But now to just follow your heart is becoming extremely dangerous and problematic when there are corporations and organizations and governments out there that for the first time in history can hack your, your heart. Mm-hmm. And your heart might be now a government agent. And you don't even know it. So telling people in 2018, just follow your heart, is a much, much more dangerous advice than in 1776. Yeah. So let's drill down on that circumstance. So we have this claim that liberal democracy is, one, under threat, and two, might not even be worth maintaining as we currently conceive it, given the technological changes that are upon us or will be upon us? No, it is worth maintaining. It's just becoming more and more difficult. Given well, well what... presumably there are things about liberal democracy that are serious bugs and not features in mm-hmm. light of the fact that, as you say, if it's all a matter of putting everything to a vote and we're, we are all part of this massive psychological experiment where we're gaming ourselves with algorithms written by some people in this room, to, <laughs> to not only confuse us with respect to what's in our best interests, but mm-hmm. the very tool we would use to decide what's worth wanting is being hijacked. It's one thing to, to be wrong about how to meet your goals. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to have the wrong goals and not even know that. It's hard to know where ground zero is for you know, mm-hmm. cognition and emotion if all of this is susceptible to outside influence, which ultimately we need to embrace because there is a possibility of influencing ourselves in ways that open vistas of well-being mm-hmm. and peaceful cooperation that we can't currently imagine, right? Or we can't see how to get to. So it's not like we actually want to go back to when there was no, quote, hacking of, of the human mind. Every conversation is an attempted hack of somebody yeah. else's mind, right? So we're just getting, it's getting more subtle now. Yeah, it, it's just, it, you know, throughout history, other people and governments and churches and so forth, they all the time tried to, to hack you and to influence you and to manipulate you. They just weren't very good at it because humans are just so incredibly complicated. And therefore, for most of history, this idea that I have an inner arena which is completely free from external manipulation, nobody out there can really understand what's happening within me. How special you are. And, yeah. and how special am I, and what I really feel and how I really think. And all, all that, it was, it was largely true. And, and therefore, the belief in, in the autonomous self and in, in free will and, and, and so forth, it made practical sense. Even if it wasn't true, 
on the level of ultimate reality, on a practical level, it was good enough. But however complicated the, the, the human entity is, we are now reaching a point when somebody out there can really hack it. Now, they want... It can never be done perfectly. We are so complicated. I'm under no illusion that any corporation or government or organization can completely understand me. It, that this is impossible. But the yardstick or the threshold, the critical threshold, is not perfect understanding. The threshold is just better than me. The, the key inflection point in history, in the history of humanity, is the moment when an external system can reliably, on a large scale, understand people better than they understand themselves. And this is not an impossible mission, because so many people don't really understand themselves very well. No. Similarly, with, so, with just, the whole just, idea... Just ask my wife. <laughs> with the whole idea of, of shifting authority from humans to algorithms. Huh. So I trust the algorithm to recommend TV shows for me. And I trust the algorithm to tell me how to drive from Mountain View to this place this evening. And eventually I trust the algorithm to tell me what to study and where to work and whom to date and whom to marry and who to vote for. And then people say, no, 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 no. That won't happen because there will be all kinds of mistakes and glitches and bugs and the algorithm will never know everything and it, it, it can't do it. And if the yardstick is the algorithm, to, to trust the algorithm, to give authority to the algorithm, it needs to make perfect decisions, then yes, it will never happen. But, that, but, but that's, that's not, not the yardstick. The, yeah, the algorithm just needs to make better decisions than me about what to study and what, where to live and so forth. <clears throat> and this is not so very difficult because as humans, we often tend to make terrible mistakes even in the most important decisions in life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I promise this will be uplifting at some point. So let's linger on the problem of the precariousness of liberal democracy. And I mean, there's so many aspects to this. But maybe yeah. just to add one, one, one thing to this precariousness, the idea that systems have to change Again, as a historian, this is obvious. I mean, you couldn't really have a functioning liberal democracy in the Middle Ages because you didn't have the necessary technology. Hmm. Liberal democracy is not this eternal ideal that can be realized anytime, any place. Take the Roman Empire in the third century, take the Kingdom of France in the 12th century, let's have a liberal democracy there. No, you don't have the technology, you don't have the infrastructure, you don't have what it takes. It takes communication, it takes education, it takes a lot of things that you just don't have. And it's not right. just a bug of liberal democracy. It's true of any socio-economic or political system. You could not build a communist regime in 16th century Russia. I mean, yeah. you can't have communism without trains and electricity and radio and so forth. Because in order to make all the decisions centrally, if a slogan is 
that you work, they take everything, and then they redistribute according to needs. Each one works according to their ability and gets according to their need. The key problem there is really a problem of, of data processing. How do I know what everybody is producing? How do I know what everybody needs? And how do I shift the resources, taking wheat from here and sending it there? In 16th century Russia, when you don't have trains, when you don't have radio, you just can't do it. So as technology changes, it's almost inevitable that the socio-economic and political systems will change. So we can't just hold on, no, this must remain as it is. The question is, how do we make sure that the changes are for the better and not for the worse? Well, by that yardstick, now might be the moment to try communism in earnest. <laughs> we can do it now, right? So you can all tweet that Yuval Noah Harari is in favor of communism. <laughs> no, I didn't say yeah, anything. No. <laughs> I mean, we had a moment in the sun that seemed, however delusionally, to be kind of outside of history. You know, it's like the, fir the first moment in my life where I realized I was living in history was September 11th, 2001. Mm -hmm. like, but before that, it just seemed like you know, people could write books with titles like The End of History. And we sort of knew how this was going to pan out, it seemed. Liberal values were going to dominate the character of, of a global civilization, ultimately. We were, we were going to fuse our horizons with people of however disparate background. Mm -hmm. You know, someone in a village in Ethiopia was eventually going to get some version of the democratic, liberal notion of human rights and the, the primacy of rationality mm -hmm. and the utility of science. So, so religious fundamentalism was going to be held back and eventually pushed all the way back and irrational economic dogmas that had proved they're, that they're merely harmful would be pushed back. And we would find an increasingly orderly and amicable collaboration among more and more people. I think, like I said, and we would, would get to a place where war between nation states would be less and less likely to the point where, by analogy, a war between states internal to a country like the United States, a war between Texas and Oklahoma mm -hmm. just wouldn't make sense, right? How is that possibly going to come we'll about. Wait and see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. And so, but now we seem to be in, in, in a moment where much of what I just said we were taking for granted mm -hmm. can't be taken for granted. There's a rise of populism. There's a, a xenophobic strand to our politics that is just uh, immensely popular, both in, in the U.S. and in Western Europe. And this anachronistic nativist reaction is, a, as you spell out in, in, your, in your most recent book, is being kindled by a totally understandable anxiety around technological change of the sort. Mm -hmm. We're talking about people who are, are sensing, it's not the only source of xenophobia and, mm -hmm. and populism, but there are many people who are sensing the prospect of their own irrelevance yeah. given the dawn of this new technological age. What are you most concerned about in this present context? Um, no, I think irrelevance is, is going to be a, a very big problem. It already fuels much of what we see today with the rise of populism, is the fear and the justified fear of, of irrelevance. If in the 20th century 
the big struggle was against exploitation, then in the 21st century, for a lot of people around the world, the big struggle is likely to be against irrelevance. And this is a much, much more difficult struggle. Uh, a century ago, so you felt that, at least you are the common person, that there were always these elites that exploit me. Now you increasingly feel, as, as a common person, that there are all these elites that just don't need me. Mm. And that's much worse. On, on many levels, both psychologically and politically, it's much worse to be irrelevant than to be exploited. Let's spell that yeah. out. Why, why is it worse? Um, first of all, because you're completely expendable. If a century ago uh, you mount a revolution against exploitation, then you know that if, if things, when bad comes to worse, they can't shoot all of us because they need us. Who's going to work in the factories? Who's going to, to, to serve in the armies if they get rid of us? That's a motivational But... poster I'm going to get printed up. <laughs> I'm not sure what the graphic is, but they can't shoot all of us. But if you're irrelevant, that's, that's not the case. You're totally expendable. And again, we, we are often, our vision of the future is colored by the recent past. The 19th and 20th century were the age of the masses, where the masses ruled. And even authoritarian regimes, they needed the masses. So you had these mass political movements, like Nazism and like communism, and even somebody like Hitler or like Stalin, they invested a lot of resources in building schools and hospitals and having vaccinations for children and sewage systems and, 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 and teaching people to read and write, not because Hitler and Stalin were such nice guys, but because they knew perfectly well that... If they wanted, for example, Germany to be a strong nation with a strong army and a strong economy, they needed millions of people, common people, to serve as soldiers in the army and as workers in the factories and in the offices. So some people could be expendable and could be scapegoats like the Jews, but on the whole, you couldn't do it to everybody. You needed them. But in the 21st century there is a serious danger that more and more people will become irrelevant and therefore also expendable. We already see it happening in the armies. That whereas the leading armies of the 20th century relied on recruiting millions of common people to serve as common soldiers, today the most advanced armies, they rely on much smaller numbers of highly professional soldiers and increasingly unsophisticated and autonomous technology. If the same thing happens in the civilian economy, then we might see a similar split in civilian society where you have a relatively small, very capable professional elite uh, relying on very sophisticated technology, and most people, just as they are already today, militarily irrelevant, they could become economically and politically irrelevant. Now, that sounds like a, a, a real risk we're running, but, but, but it's, the normal intuitions about what is scary about that don't hold up given the right construal and expectations about human well-being. I mean, so it's mm -hmm. like we know what 
people are capable of doing when they're irrelevant, because aristocrats have done that for centuries. I mean, there are people who have not had to work in every period of human history, and they had a fine old time, you know, shooting pheasant and inventing weird board games. And, 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 and then if you add to that some more sophisticated way of finding well-being, you know, mm-hmm. so, so if we taught people you know, Stoic philosophy and how to meditate and good sports, and there's no, it's nowhere written that life is only meaningful if you are committed to something you would only do, you only will do because someone's paying you to do it, well, right? Definitely. I mean, you know. there is a worst case and a best case scenario. In the best case scenario, uh, people are relieved of all the difficult, boring jobs that nobody really wants to do, but you do it because you need the money. Right. And you're relieved of that. And the enormous profits of the automation revolution are shared between everybody. And you can spend your time, your leisure time, on uh, exploring yourself, developing, developing yourself, doing art or meditating or playing sports or developing communities. There are wonderful scenarios mm. that can be realized. There are also some terrible scenarios that can be realized. I mean, I, I don't think there is anything, anything inevitable. I mean, the technology, the technological revolution which is just beginning right now, it can go in completely different directions. Again, if you look back at the 20th century, then you see that with the same technology of trains and electricity and radio, you can build a communist dictatorship or a fascist regime or a liberal democracy. The trains don't care. They don't tell you what to do with them. And they they, they can be used for, for anything you can use them for. They don't object. Uh, and it's the same with, with AI and biotechnology and all the current uh, technological inventions. We can use them to build really paradise or hell. The, the one thing that is certain is that we are going to become far more powerful than ever before, far more powerful than we are now. We are really going to acquire divine abilities uh, of creation, in some sense even greater abilities than what uh, was traditionally ascribed to most gods from Zeus to Yahweh. Mm. If you look, for instance, the creation story in the Bible, the only things that Yahweh managed to create are organic entities. And we are now on the verge of creating the first inorganic entities after four billion years of evolution. So in this sense, we are even on the verge of outperforming the biblical God in, in, in creation. And we can do so many different things with, with that. Some of them can be extremely good. Some of them can be extremely bad. Mm. Uh, this is why it's so important to have these kinds of, of conversations. Uh, because this is maybe the most important question that we are facing. What, what to do with these powers? Yeah. So, so what norms or, or stories or conventions or fictions, concepts, ideas, do you think stand in the way of us taking the right path here? I mean, so take, we, we've sort of alluded to it without naming it. Let's say we could all agree that universal basic income was the, the near-term remedy for some explosion of automation and irrelevance. Mm-hmm. You look skeptical about that. What, what, yeah, I, I have two difficulties with universal basic income, mm-hmm. which is universal and basic. Income mm-hmm. is fine. Yeah. But, 
universal and basic, they, 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 are, they are ill-defined. Most people, when they speak about universal basic income, they actually have in mind national basic income. Right. They think in terms, okay, we'll, we'll tax Google and Facebook in, in, in California and use that to pay unemployment benefits or to give free education to unemployed coal miners in Pennsylvania and unemployed taxi drivers in New York. The real problem is not going to be in New York. The real problem, the greatest problem, is going to be in Mexico, in Honduras, in Bangladesh. And I don't see an American government taxing corporations in California and sending the money to Bangladesh to pay unemployment benefits there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really the, the automation so revolution. They're, they're clapping to stop us from paying. <laughs> <laughs> Those with the libertarians in the audience are clever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we've built, yeah. over the last few generations, a global economy and a global trade network. Mm. And the automation revolution is likely to unravel the global trade network and hit the weakest links the hardest. Right. So you will have enormous new wealth, enormous new wealth, created here in, in San Francisco and Silicon Valley but you can have the economies of entire countries just collapse completely because what they know how to do, nobody needs that anymore. And we need a global solution for this. So universal, if, you, if by universal you mean global, taking yeah. money from California and sending it to Bangladesh, then yes, this can work. But if you mean national, it's not a real answer. And the second problem is with basic How do you define what are the basic needs of of human beings? Now, in a scenario in which a significant proportion of people no longer have any jobs, and they depend on, on this universal basic income or universal basic services, whatever they get, they can't go beyond that. This is, this is the only thing they're going to get. Then who defines what is their basic needs? What is basic education? Is it just literacy or also coding or everything up to PhD or playing the violin? Who decides? And what is basic healthcare? Is it just, I mean, if, if you're looking 50 years to the future and you see genetic engineering of, of, of your children and you see all kinds of treatments to extend life, mm-hmm. is this the monopoly of a tiny elite Or is this part of the universal basic package? And who decides? So it, well, it's a first step. The discussion we have now about universal basic income is an important first step. But we need to go much more deeply into understanding what we actually mean by universal and by basic. Right. Well, so let, let's imagine that we... We begin to extend the circle, coincident with this, this rise in affluence. And because on some level, if the technology is developed correctly, we are talking about pulling wealth out of the ether, right? So, so automation and artificial intelligence, there's more, the, the pie is getting bigger. And then the question is how generously or wisely we will share it with the people who are becoming irrelevant because we don't need them for their labor anymore. Let's, let's say we get better at that than we currently are. But I mean, mm-hmm. you, you can imagine that we are going to be, we will be fast to realize that we need to take care of the people 
in our neighborhood, you know, in San Francisco, and we will be slower to realize we need to take care of the people in Somalia. Mm -hmm. But maybe we'll just, these lessons will be hard won. We'll realize if we don't take care of the people in Somalia, a refugee crisis unlike any we've ever seen mm -hmm. will, will hit us in six months, right? So that, like, there'll be some completely self-serving reason why we need to eradicate famine or some other largely economic problem elsewhere. But presumably, we can be made to care more and more about everyone. Again, if only out of self-interest, what are the primary impediments to our doing that? Human nature. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it is possible. It's just very difficult. Um, I think we need for a, a number of reasons to develop a global identities, a global loyalty, a loyalty to the whole of humankind and to the whole of planet Earth. So this is, and, a, this is a story that becomes so captivating that it supersedes other stories that yeah. seem to say not, not, Team not America. Not abolishes or... them. I don't think we need to abolish all nations and cultures and languages and just become this homogeneous gray goo all over the planet. No, you can have several identities and loyalties at the same time. People already do it now. They had it throughout history. I can be loyal to my family, to my neighborhood, to my profession, to my city, and to my nation at the same time. And there are, there are conflicts, say, between the loyal, my loyalty to my, to my business and my loyalty to, them, to my family. So I hate to think hard. Sometimes I prefer the interests of the family. Sometimes I prefer the interests of the, of, of the business. So, you know, that's life. We have these difficulties in life. It's not always easy. So I'm not saying let's abolish all other identities. And from now on, we are just citizens of the world. But we can add this kind of layer of loyalty to their previous layers. And this, you know, people have been talking about it for, for thousands of years. But, but now it really becomes a, a necessity because we are now facing three global problems which are the most important problems of humankind. And it should be obvious to everybody that they can only be solved on a global level through global cooperation. Right. These are nuclear war, climate change, and technological disruption should be obvious to anybody that you can't solve climate change on a national level. You can't build a wall against rising temperatures or rising uh, uh, sea levels. Mm. Uh, you, no country, even United States or China, no country is ecologically independent. There are no longer independent countries in the world if you look at it from an ecological perspective. Right. Similarly, when it comes to technological disruptions, the potential dangers of artificial intelligence and biotechnology should be obvious to everybody. You cannot regulate artificial intelligence on a national level. If there is some technological development you're afraid of, like developing autonomous weapon systems, or like doing genetic engineering on human babies, then if you want to regulate this, you need cooperation with other countries because like the ecology, also science and technology, they are, they are global. They don't belong to any one country or any one government. So if, for example, the United States bans genetic engineering on human beings, um, it won't prevent the Chinese or the Koreans or the Russians from doing it. 
And then a few years down the line, if the Chinese are starting to produce superhumans by the thousands, the Americans wouldn't like to stay behind. So they will break their own ban. The only way to prevent a very dangerous arms race in the fields of AI and biotechnology is through global cooperation. Now, it's going to be very difficult, but I don't think it's impossible. I actually gain a lot of hope from seeing the strength of nationalism. Um, because okay, so, so that, that's totally counterintuitive, because what the, everything you just said, in the space provided, there's only one noun that solves the, the problem, which is world government on mm -hmm. some level. No, like, world like, we don't need a single emperor or government. You can have good cooperation even without a single emperor. Then we need some other tools to, by which to cooperate because we have, you know, in a world that is as politically fragmented as ours into mm -hmm. nation states, all of which have their domestic political concerns and their short time horizon. So you're talking about global problems and long-term problems mm -hmm. that can only be solved through global co cooperation and long-term thinking. Yeah. And we have political systems that are insular and focused on time horizons that don't exceed four or, in the best case, six years. Yeah. And then we have the occasional semi-benevolent dictatorship that can play the game slightly differently. So what is the solution if not just a fusing of political apparatus at some point in the future? No, we certainly need to go beyond the national level to a, a, a level when we have real trust between different countries, uh, of the kind you see, for example, in, in, still in the European Union. Um, if you take the example of, of having a ban on developing autonomous weapon systems. Mm. So if the Chinese and the Americans today try to sign an agreement banning killer robots, the big problem there is trust. How do you really trust the other side? To, to live up to the agreement. Um, AI is, in this sense, much worse than nuclear weapons, because with nuclear weapons, it's very difficult to develop nuclear weapons in complete secrecy. Uh, yeah. People are going to notice. But with AI, the, you, there are all kinds of things you can do in secret, and the big question is, how can we trust them? And at present, there is no way that the Chinese and the Americans, for example, are really going to be able to trust one another. Even if they sign an agreement, every side will say, yes, we are good guys, we don't want to do it, but how can we really be sure that they are not doing it? So we have to do it first. But if you think about, for example, France and Germany, despite the terrible history of these two countries, a much worse history, yeah. than the history of the relations between China and, and the U.S. If today the Germans come to the French and they tell, us, and they tell the French, trust us, we don't have some secret laboratory in the Bavarian Alps where we develop killer robots in order to conquer France, the French will believe them. And the French have good reason to believe them. They are really trustworthy in, in this. And if the French and Germans manage to reach this situation... I think it's not hopeless also for the Chinese and the Americans. So, so what explains that difference? Because it is a shocking fact of history that you can, just, you can take these time slices that are you know, 40, 50 years apart where you, you, know, you have the, the attempted rise of the Thousand-Year Reich 
where you know, Germany is the least trustworthy nation anyone could conceive of, the most power hungry, the most militaristic. You could say the same about Japan at that moment. And then fast forward a few decades and we have what I guess it's, it's always vulnerable to some, some change, but we have a, just a seemingly truly durable basis of trust. Mm -hmm. What is, you know, as a historian, what, what accomplished that magic and why is it hard to just reverse engineer that with respect to Russia or China or any other well, it's just a, a, a lot of hard work. I mean, in the case of the Germans, what you can say about them is they are very thorough people. <laughs> when, when, when they want to exterminate you, they yeah. do a very thorough job. <laughs> and when they want to say, I'm sorry, they also do a very thorough job. <laughs> I mean, nobody said, I'm sorry, I made a mistake in a more thorough way right. well, than the Germans over the last uh, uh, couple of decades. Well, they did have a lot to apologize for. Yes, <laughs> and, and, and you know, there are other countries who have a lot to apologize for and didn't yeah. do nearly as good a job yes. in apologizing uh, as the Germans. Yeah. So they, they do deserve some credit in this respect. But... Um, what I, I would like to, to emphasize and to go back to, to why I think that nationalism actually is a sign to be hopeful, the strength of nationalism, right. because a lot of people think that nationalism is, is natural to homo sapiens. And you hear it a lot these days, that it's in our genes, nothing can, do about, nothing can be done about the strength of, of national emotions, and this is, it, this is nonsense. Yeah. Humans are social animals, this is true, but evolution adapted us to identify with a very small group of people whose chief characteristic is that we know everybody intimately. We are adapted by millions of years of evolution to feel loyal to a hundred people we actually know intimately. Nationalism developed only over the last few thousand years, which is yesterday morning in evolutionary terms. And nationalism really demands something almost impossible of, of, of these apes, of us, mm. to feel loyal to millions of strangers that we have never met before, we know nothing about as, as, as individuals, and we are never likely to meet and nevertheless feel so connected to them, so loyal to them, that we are willing sometimes to risk our lives for them in war, or at the very least to, for example, pay taxes in order that people on the other side of the country whom I've never met and I don't know anything about them will have a good education and, and good health care. And nationalism managed to do that, to make you care about a hundred million people you never met. And if we can do that, I think the distance from, from here to caring about eight billion people you never met is, is much smaller than the distance we've already covered. If, yeah. we, if you manage to get from a hundred people you know to a hundred million people you don't know, from there to eight billion people you don't know, it's still a distance but it's a much shorter distance. Yeah. 
Well, given the place we started this conversation, it should be easily accomplished with the right hacking technology, right? I mean, we should just be able to manipulate ourselves in this benign direction. The dispiriting thing here is that even if you spell out the path forward in the most hopeful and seeming utopian way, mm -hmm. that begins to, in most people's mind, flirt with some terrifyingly Aldous Huxley-like scenario where it's just, you know, people are going to be manipulated into being benign, right? Like, like, like it really is a tightrope walk to even envision a future to aim for. Utopian pictures of, of possibility, we know it's just, it's just that's, that's the graveyard of every, every previous generation's yeah. hopes I, and I, dreams. Right? I'm not talking about utopian visions. I mean, the best way to get people together is to find an enemy. This, is, this was the trick of nationalism. Yeah. And we now have three enemies. We have nuclear war, we have climate change, and we have technological disruption. And these are enemies that threaten almost every human being on Earth. And we really need to unite uh, against them. And, and, you know, this is a very practical thing. It's not a, 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 like a, some, some abstract theory. Like, you're going to have uh, an, a, a midterm elections in, in a couple of months. So I would say whenever a politician has a rally or have a, an interview to the press, ask the politician how does he or she think that we are going to deal with nuclear war, with climate change, and with technological disruption? What is right. their plan? You're articulating that admonishment in a country that has elected a person who <laughs> no one can imagine answering that question in, a, <laughs> in an intelligible way. And, and, but, and when I say no one, I mean even his supporters, right? Like, it, it's not like any, like, we're, we are so far from even attempting a rational management of the problems you're talking about. Like, not only are we not talking about it, we're promoting to positions of greatest power and responsibility people we don't even think could talk about those problems. But again, it's not a guarantee of, of, of success. But we certainly need, and this is not true only of the U.S., it's true of, of all countries, to, to change the conversation. Raise these questions more and more. Focus attention on these issues. Yeah. Um, whether this, this will guarantee success, no. But this is the first step. I mean, as long as the conversation gets bogged down in things like, I don't know, immigration and whether to build a wall or not to build a wall and, and, and so forth, then it's easier. I mean, many of the, of, the, of, of the politicians today in the world, they have absolutely no vision for the future of humankind. You ask them, what is your best case and worst case scenario for humankind in 2040? And you really get nothing. But they are rarely asked these questions. Mm. And this is part, just part, but an important part, of what enables them to sell people nostalgic fantasies about the past. They keep talking about the past. Let's go back to the past. Because they are not really challenged to come up with a meaningful vision for the future. And this is... This is, 
part of our responsibility as a public and as journalists and, and thinkers and so forth to put these questions very forcefully on the table. If they ignore it, they ignore it. But at least people realize they ignore these questions. Mm. I mean, if, if, when I looked at the 2016 elections in the US, I was amazed that the questions were not even raised. Yeah. It's not like Hillary Clinton was all the time talking about the AI revolution and Donald Trump was ignoring it. No, everybody was ignoring it. I mean, the only reference to, to this technology was Hillary Clinton's email scandals. Mm. You know, emails, that's 1990s. I mean, so it's, it's not, I don't think it's, it's a problem of just one part of the, of the political spectrum. I don't no. really see almost anybody today on the right or on the left, in the US or elsewhere, who really has a meaningful vision for the future of humankind. And it's the same when I looked at the Brexit debate in Britain, that these issues were not even raised. I mean, Britain is one of the leaders of the world, it's one of the nuclear powers, it's one of the five permanent members of the Security Council, and there was very little discussion of nuclear war in, 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 in reference to Brexit. There was very little discussion of, will, will Brexit help us? regulate artificial intelligence and bioengineering or not. This was not even a question that was raised. Now, obviously, it won't help. It just makes it much, much more difficult. If, if the EU breaks into 28 different countries, then it makes regulating AI or preventing climate change much, much more difficult. It, it doesn't help at all. Right. So, so part of the necessary condition for, for global collaboration is more and more political integration globally? I mean, is there some radically local solution to this politically, or is it, or is it by definition? No, th there is no local. You, it should be obvious. You, can't, you can do many things on a local level, in the, even on the, on the level of the city. You can make San Francisco even more environmentally aware than it is. Um, but, and, and this is very important. But it should be obvious that if it's only San Francisco, if it's only California, it's not really going to solve the problem. Well, no, but I mean, certain memes can spread, and they don't have to spread from the top down, right? So we have this, there's no law that demands that there be a Starbucks on every corner, but by some economic magic there is, <laughs> right? I mean, this is what communism got wrong. Communism imagined, or one, uh, among the many things communism got wrong, it imagined that you, you needed someone at the top to decide there should be a shoe store over there, otherwise mm. there's just no way th these people will figure out how to have shoes. So economics does sort of, the, the, the layer of economic incentive does float free of, mm. of the, these the political boundaries between countries, largely, until we kind of... Yeah, I, I wouldn't trust the free market on that. Right. I don't think the free market is going to solve climate change, and I don't think the free market is going to solve uh, the immense challenges but of if, the if, automation if, revolution and, and the biotechnology. I, I was using economics just as a, an, as a one version of this, but you know, religious dogmatism is its mm -hmm. own free market, right? Mm -hmm. So the ideas spread and by conquest, often historically, but also just by conversation, mm -hmm. and it's not a matter of nation-states cohering Christians across borders are still Christians and, and affiliated in that way. Mm -hmm. so, but you don't see a 
concern for finding global solutions to these most pressing problems spreading organically just at the level of ideas no, prior to any kind, of, any kind of political mechanism that would, would this enshrine is what we're doing this concern. Here. I mean, part of the idea of let's change the conversation, it doesn't have to start from the presidents and the right. prime ministers. They are far too busy with the next elections uh, to worry about these issues. But, but, uh, that, but that seems, I mean, if, again, this is kind of a naive perception, I mean, because I'm not a political scientist, I'm not a historian, this is not something I've thought about a lot, but it just seems to me obvious, naively so, that having a political machine that is, by definition, calibrated to a four-year time cycle Mm -hmm. just is exactly the machine you can't have to implement a long-term concern. I mean, how do you not, think, not, how do we think about the next hundred years? If you years? think, for example, about the strength of uh, religious ideas and religious emotions when it comes to elections, mm. I mean, if you think about whatever your thoughts are about uh, uh, pro-choice and pro-life, mm. I mean, these are not matters of, you know, the, the economic cycle of the next year or two. The people who are moved by the ideals of both sides, pro-choice and pro-life, they think in very deep existential terms about it. You can think in similar terms about the implications of genetic engineering. So uh, the real issue is that like, when you go to a, a, a town meeting with a politician, he or she are running to be mayor or congressman or president, what kind of questions you ask? So you could ask questions about the immediate economic cycle. I just lost my job. Will I get a a new job in the next year? You can ask um, long-term moral questions about things like abortion. And you can ask long-term moral questions about things like artificial intelligence or, or climate change. So I don't think that by design, a democratic system with a four-year cycle of elections rules out any, any discussion or any serious impact of long-term concerns. Well, it does seem to me then that it's primarily a psychological problem because we know this about ourselves. We have at least two aspects to this problem. One is that whatever the, whatever the long-term concern, no matter how much we, can, we, we agree that it is real, we just hyperbolically discount our concern about the future. So it's just, it's just very hard to care about even your future self who you know you will be, right? I mean, so it's, like the, it's the person who's smoking cigarettes who knows that this is basically the worst decision they can make for their health. Once they're captivated by that... I'm not sure. And people can be very worried that if we allow more immigrants in then in 30 years, my daughter will have to, to wear the burqa. Right. And so, this is a very yeah. long term. It's not happening, but people can project it to the future and become extremely agitated and moved by, by that vision. Similarly, people can be motivated by, after I die, will I go to heaven or hell? This is a very yeah. long-term perspective. And yeah. it can influence what you're doing right now or, what, what, or how you vote right now. So, I don't again, know how I, I got I, into a situation where Yuval is now having to convince me that people care about religious <laughs> myths, what happened after death. So, but, but yes, but there's this additional 
problem. So the, the three concerns that are your top three mm-hmm. are, so one, you have nuclear war, which is, for, for those who are paid to worry about it, we are at the, the most worrisome moment they have ever experienced. I mean, if you get you know, William Perry talking about the prospect of nuclear war, he's as scared as he was during the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, or virtually mm-hmm. so. I mean, this, is like this, this problem has not gone away, not even slightly. And yet most people feel, even with you know, the recent colorful exchanges around this issue between Trump and North Korea, or, or, or you know, the, just mm-hmm. the way, degree to which we've worried about Putin, most people feel that the Cold War is over and nuclear war is not really on the menu, right? Mm-hmm. Climate change, we can't even agree that it's a thing on some basic level, mm-hmm. right? And the, the prospect of AI and automation deranging human society and deranging even our conception of what it is to be a person is, in many cases, just fun to think about, right? I mean, this is a, it's just like, this is, this is every sci-fi movie where AI goes wrong. This is just pure good fun. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, many people in this room, I, I think, imagine that the, the fears over this have been vastly overblown. I mean, I've had, you know, whenever you get, I mean, there's, there's the, the scared side of Silicon Valley that takes these concerns seriously. But then there are the people who, who say that you, you have no idea how hard it is to build anything intelligent. You know, the chess plane machines are not going to take over anytime soon. This is all overblown. Elon Musk is nuts. And this is just, this is a non-issue. This is the most sententious version of this is worrying about dangerous AI is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's like we don't, we're, we're so far away from this being a reality, we don't even know what to worry about. You know, it's like, no, we and, definitely need to be careful about what we worry about. When I worry about AI, I usually don't worry about this, the, the typical science fiction scenario of AI becoming conscious and then deciding to, to exterminate all the humans or right. something like that. I don't think we are anywhere near or on the road to AI gaining consciousness. I think this whole business uh, is rooted in a very deep confusion uh, that many well, people well, have. Just, just to correct a, a potential misunderstanding there, the people who are most worried about AI are not worried that it will become conscious. Mm-hmm. It's just that it will become so competent Right, whether the lights are on subjectively or not. Even the competence. I mean, for it to have a a very big impact on the job market and through that on Mm. the economy and on on the political situation, you don't need an extremely competent AI. You don't need general intelligence. Most of the jobs that are in danger, they don't involve general intelligence whether it's driving a car or whether it's even diagnosing a disease. When you need to diagnose a disease, data comes in, gets processed, and and then there is a diagnosis coming out. This is exactly the thing that a very limited AI is likely to to do much better than a human being. Most of the jobs that humans do today, they involve just a tiny, tiny fraction of the human potential. So to replace humans in those jobs, you don't need a conscious AI. You don't need a general intelligence. You just need competence in a very limited field. And, and this is a major danger. I think that, yes, in, in many cases, people worry about the wrong things. Uh, but there are things to worry about. And 
and this is part of, of changing the conversation. Hmm. That I think much more of the political debate, say about the job market, should focus on automation and run not on immigration. So you have politicians frightening people that the Mexicans will take your jobs. And instead, we should frighten people that the robots will take your jobs. Yes. Mexican robots, even worse. Yes. <laughs> Ro robots built in Mexico will come and take your jobs. All right, well, on that note, <laughs> I want to solicit questions from the people who are building these robots because uh, there's a lot to talk about. And, and one of the primary virtues of gathering like this physically is to be able to turn this into a, a kind of town hall and ask questions. As the mics are, are um, moving out there, if we could uh, yeah, alter the lights so that we can, we can actually see one another. I'll just remind you that, that questions, at the very least affect a high-rising tone at the end of the sentence. Uh, <laughs> and your, your, your fellow uh, audience members will love you if, if you keep it short. Uh, and if you're anywhere near the back of a long line, we probably won't get to you, and we apologize in advance. So, so, but now we'll start over here. Thank you. Uh, that mic is not yet hot. So let's try you here. Neither is that mic. All right, well, our robot overlords are not, not taking over anytime soon if we can't get the mics on. Check, check. Yes, I heard you. All right, so this is three sentences, ends in a question. Cool. Answering these threats depends on collaboration, identifying the best ideas, and arriving at a consensus. With the current technolo uh, technological trends, this is possible in the near future. It's just a matter of incentivizing engagement in such a system. If we could perfectly quantify all people's abilities and all people are perfectly connected, would a meritocracy be more effective than a liberal democracy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there was a recent book, which I haven't read. It's actually on a disconcertingly tall pile of books I have to read against democracy. I mean, the pe people who are arguing that democracy itself is not the right mm -hmm. system and that, you know, people who are not qualified to make decisions uh, on, on these topics shouldn't be mm -hmm. promoting orange-haired monstrosities into the Oval Office. What do you think about questioning this story that everyone should have equal input into how to steer the ship mm -hmm. of I think there is a lot of confusion here between um, the ability to solve a problem and uh, the priorities of society. Once we have an agreement about what we want to do, what we define as a problem, what is our goal, then democracy makes absolutely no sense. Once, if, if you're on an, an airplane and everybody agrees that we want to land this airplane safely, then you don't start having votes about whether to, to, to turn the wheel here or there. You just have an expert at the, at the wheel, hopefully, and he or she land the airplane. Once you agree that uh, uh, if you have some disease, you want to get rid of it, so you go to the expert. You don't have a vote between all the people in the hospital about what to do. But democracy kicks in because in many, many cases, the, the, the problem is we don't agree 
what are the, what, what are the problems and what are the goals. And when it, it comes to that, there is no reason to give experts in a particular field uh, more authority or more power than, than anybody else. But what if the technology allows for people to be identified as being more proficient in any given field? So again, once you agree on what is the problem and what is the goal, then obviously you need to turn to the experts. And uh, it's very good to have elites. Uh, I think it's, as Dawkins, I think, said that when, I si when I'm sick, I want an elite doctor. Yeah. When I'm on an airplane, I want an elite pilot. It's very good to have these elites. But when it comes to just defining what are the basic goals and what are the problems we are facing, um, it's much, much more dangerous and difficult to just say, okay, let's let some experts decide on that. But would you, for instance, if, if we could build a democracy where you know, everyone had to pass some test of their knowledge of just the issues that were governing our politics, so, mm -hmm. so just if you knew anything at all about trade or economics or the implications of, of uh, backing one proposal or, or one candidate or the other, if when tested, we could know that you knew nothing, mm -hmm. right? Why should your vote cancel the vote of someone who was massively well-informed on all the issues and was intelligently deciding among the options that, uh, and, and, the goals, and the goals and criteria that we've already agreed are real? Because human, humans are, are, to a very large extent, shaped and influenced by their personal experience. And uh, it's very difficult to take that out of the equation. And if you give all the power to a small group of experts who largely share the same experiences and they live in the same places and they have the but, same education But, but I think, so I think what he's imagining is not a small group of experts, but just a system. And let's say we had a, you know, some, if we implemented our democracy online, mm -hmm. you know, so you could just vote from your house, but before you yeah, voted... Yeah, okay, yeah, I see where it's going. Yes, we, we should certainly experiment as, as we develop the ability to get to know people better, then certainly there is room for such experiments, but they should be conducted very, very carefully. Um, that's that's the, the best I can say at, the, at this moment in history. I mean, the, again, the, the, I'm, I'm, the, I'm most worried about the word perfect that you used. Any system that demands perfection won't work. So whatever system you have in mind, it should be imperfect. It should take into account imperfection. Otherwise, it just sets the bar so high that it's a recipe for disaster. The, the word perfect was for the purpose of like the thought experiment, but I just wanted to say that this, is, this can be used for the purpose of creating. Yeah, oh, got it. See, the democracy is starting to speak here. <laughs> yeah. Hi. Um, First of all, thank you so much uh, both for being here. This yeah. has been amazing. Um, given that to some extent, uh, the way that we exist as people, as nations, as potentially a world government maybe, um, to some extent is uh, a battle between the present version of myself and future me. 
or the battle between our nation and the future version of our nation. Mm -hmm. um, and then you could even say that for, that's true for human civilization in general, that if the post-human is it some, to some degree at war with us, if that's the case, A, how many generations after you die do you care about? And B, how important is it to consider the implications of this battle? Thank you. Um, I think that the future is very important for the present uh, because it's, it makes you realize very important things about what is important now. I won't be alive in a hundred years or a thousand years, but when I think what is important now, it is influenced by my understanding of the future. For example, um, I have a very strong opinion or impression that uh, my state, my nation, Israel, will not exist in a thousand years, um, and no nation will exist in a thousand years. And this is one of the reasons why I tend to discount the importance, the ultimate reality and importance of nations right now. But there is a good chance it will still exist when I die. So throughout my life, I lived within this uh, system of the state of Israel. But knowing that in the not-too-distant future, a couple of centuries at the most, not only this particular nation, but the very system of nations will disappear, and the entities that will exist in that future would look back incredulous that people could actually take it so seriously, this makes me discount it already today. So this is why, uh, for me, the future is very important. Yeah. Hello, my name is Paul Shapiro from Sacramento, and I'm grateful to both of you for a great conversation. Yuval, I know that you are vegan, and you have written very compellingly about the treatment of animals and the way that technology has been used to harm them. I'm wondering what your thoughts are with regard to how technology might be used in the future to create better relations with the rest of the species on our planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it, it, it's one of our best hopes. Uh, for example, I don't see how you can convince now 8 billion people to become vegan just by ethical and, 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 and environmental arguments. You can convince a certain percentage, but, but not all. And technological solutions, like switching from slaughtered meat to clean meat, mm. can provide the answer. If people are going, they still want a steak, but the idea that in order to have a steak, you need to have a cow, we can get rid of that idea will be easier than getting rid of the idea that I want a steak. And, mm. and this is no longer science fiction. We already now at a stage when if we want a steak, we can just grow a steak actually, instead of actually, raising I, a cow. I, I think he might be here. Uma Valetti, who, who is the CEO of Memphis Meats, is one of the pioneers in this area. I think Uma's here. Uh, not to out you in a... In a <laughs> surrounded by an, an army of angry vegans, Uma, but... <laughs> But uh, this is a, just a fascinating example of, of a psychological hang-up that is hard to transform because one of the, the barriers to clean meat adoption, apart from just the, the, the effort to, to get the cost down and to bring it to scale, 
is this sense that people have intuitively that meat produced in a lab that doesn't entail the chaos and misery of a slaughterhouse is somehow creepy, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you give me a meatball and you tell me that it was grown in a perfectly sterile environment by good-natured people in white lab coats, most people think, ick, right? Mm -hmm. And then you say, oh no, uh, sorry, that, that's not the meatball I was talking about. I gave you the one that was the product of the most horrific mistreatment of cows that were covered in bacteria and viruses and staggering around in their own waste. And then some brute slaughtered them callously. Well, that's exactly the meatball I want to eat. <laughs> it, And yet, so, but this is something, this is an, an association to get over. And so, and yeah. so like, th th this is a very, it's very odd to encounter that, even among people who will totally acknowledge that getting, figuring out some way to cancel this, this needless suffering and death of animals would be a great thing. Yeah, people can adapt to, to almost anything. Uh, in some countries, it will be more difficult than others. Uh, there are many places around the world when people are just now beginning to eat meat. Uh, for economic reasons. Right. But previously, like you're a Chinese peasant, you just eat rice. You can't afford to eat meat. And we now have, for, for every American that goes vegan, there are maybe 10 or 100 Chinese that start eating meat. And at least in that market, um, if, if they start with clean meat, you don't have to convince them yeah, right. about switching. It's the first meat they eat. So uh, uh, this, this could be a very good place to start. And most of what we eat at one point or another, we had to get used to it. I mean, in the agricultural revolution, people had difficult times adjusting to the idea that we had to, we had to eat this wheat or this rice as most of our diet. Um, so I don't think that this is an impossible barrier. Right. Okay. So we were here. Yeah, yeah. Hi. Thank you both for your important work. Um, I have a lot of admiration and appreciation for an organization you may have come across called 80,000 Hours mm -hmm. that came out of the effective altruist movement. And they specifically focus on advising people at any stage of their career how they can orient or reorient towards making the largest possible positive impact on the world and humanity's future. I'm wondering what you two might be able to offer to the audience tonight in terms of your specific thoughts on how students, young professionals, mm. established professionals, exec executives, VCs, mm. Bitcoin billionaires, tech leaders, all of that. What, what can we do to create a flourishing humanity? Well, follow your heart, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> It's a different advice. I mean, there is no one-size-fits-all. Um, if you're a billionaire head of some big corporation, there are many things you can do that if you're just a college student, then you can't. I think what is important for everybody is to get to know yourself better uh, because we are now entering the era in which we are hackable animals and there are all these corporations and governments and so forth that are trying to hack you, whether you are a student or a billionaire, and you need to run faster than these people and organizations that are trying to hack you. I mean, it's the oldest advice in the book, to get to know yourself better, but previously you did not have serious competition. 
if in the age of Socrates or Jesus or Buddha, you said, eh, I don't have time for getting to know myself better. I'm too busy with my herd of goats or something. Then it was, you know, you had to pray to pay a price, but you were still a black box to the rest of humanity. Now, uh, you're, as we speak, we are being hacked. And if, if you don't get to know yourself better, then you become very easy prey for all these organizations and, and corporations and, and government. So this is one, one important advice. The second advice I can give is, is join an organization. Uh, if you want to make a real difference in the world, it's almost impossible to do it as an individual activist. Uh, 50 people who work together are a far, far more powerful force in the world than 50 individual activists. So whatever cause you believe in, join an organization. Uh, this would be my, my second advice. And, and my, my third, again, very practical advice, especially here with the, the coming elections, is um, the questions we discussed earlier. Nuclear war and climate change and technological disruption, this should be at the top of the political agenda. So simply ask the questions. If you go to a town hall meeting and there is somebody aspiring for office to be a congressman or congresswoman, just ask, ask them, what are your views about regulating AI? What are your views about uh, uh, preventing a nuclear war? How, if I elect you, what are you going to do to make it a bit less likely that uh, we will end up with nuclear war or climate change or some technological dystopia? One of the other great things about 80,000 hours and, and the effective altruism movement is that it's playing with the norms of philanthropy in ways that are changing people's intuitions about just how to, how to do good in the world. So, I mean, this is, a, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but so Will McCaskill, the, the moral philosopher who's been very influential in, and you know, arguably one of the founders of the movement, it's not straight, but most people think that building wealth is antithetical to being good in the world. I mean, it's synonymous with selfishness, but it's, it's, it's quite possible that given who you are and your set of talents, the best thing you could do is not volunteer in Africa. The best thing you can do is make a ton of money in some reasonably benign way and give a lot of it away to people who are doing good in the world or curing diseases or whatever. So, I mean, there are there's other norms. There are norms in philanthropy that are clearly counterproductive. For instance, Many people judge the effectiveness of a, a charity by the percentage of funds spent on, on overhead you know, or on marketing. But there are charities that manage to raise tenfold for a good cause what other charities can raise because they're spending much more on overhead and, and marketing. And charities are not incentivized. They're not allowed to pay their CEOs what big corporations pay their CEOs. And for that reason, people who are very talented in these areas, are forced to make a choice when picking careers. Well, do I want to make a ton of money working for a, a real corporation, or do I want to make a tiny fraction of that doing good in the world? We don't judge someone who's making a ton of money at Apple, say, but we do judge someone if they're making a ton of money at the Red Cross, because why is the Red Cross spending so much on their CEO? But if the Red Cross wants to be as good as Apple, 
arguably needs to incentivize people in, in those ways. So I think the norms around philanthropy are, are shifting in, in interesting ways, too. Hi, gentlemen. Um, as a fairly serious meditator, I wanted to uh, ask both of you if you would be willing to recount uh, any particular particular memories from retreat, uh, whether you were sitting or not, um, what kind of practices you were doing. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying, it's just recounting memories from retreat seems uh, not useful here, but I guess I would say, I mean, it's, we haven't touched the topic much, Yuval. Well, I well, can, well, I can yeah, just say about yeah. that, that one of the biggest dangers in, in meditation is the pursuit of special experiences. Yeah. That it gets you distracted and sidetracked from the real job, which is getting just to know your mind, not in a special way, like with fireworks or whatever, but getting to know your annoying, boring, distracted, destructive mind in its most mundane. And, you know, people, they come out of, of, of a, say, one hour sitting of meditation, and they say, oh, I had this great meditation. I was so focused, and everything was so peaceful. And then they come out of an hour, and then this was a terrible, I, I don't know why I wasted this hour. I was just in wandering thoughts and, and, and whatever. And this is just wrong. I mean, the first thing is to just get to know your mind. So if you sit for one hour with your mind and it's all over the place, that's your mind. So I, I, I would say that um, I don't want to share any special experiences of, of meditation. I'll share this. I sit for one hour, and my mind is all over the place. <laughs> I guess I would add that there's a, an additional point that explains the logic of not caring about special experiences, because the goal of meditation is not to get more and more peak experiences even though people are readily misled by the, their peak experiences. So if the first time you meditate and it seems to be, quote, working because you have a highly non-ordinary experience, you start out not even realizing how distracted you are, then you, get, you meditate a little more and you, then you realize your mind is completely out of control. But then if you persist, you begin to have these experiences where you touch real concentration and that the signature of that tends to be some very pleasant changes in what it's like to be you, right, in the nature of your experience. And then you begin to associate those transient changes with success in meditation. But the real goal, paradoxically, is to notice certain things about totally ordinary consciousness that are liberating in a, a deep sense. And this is where psychedelics have been incredibly useful for many of us, but this is where the, there's a disanalogy between psychedelic experience and meditative experience, because with psychedelic experience, the point is the pyrotechnics on some level. I mean, if you take acid and nothing happens, well, you're going to fire your chemist, right? <laughs> but the center of the bullseye meditatively is recognizing certain things about the nature of ordinary consciousness, which, are, which don't, get, they don't get freer of self 
when you add the pyrotechnics of the, of the sort that you experience in a psychedelic experience or that you can experience in so-called peak experiences in meditation. Because again, anything that comes, it goes. And what you're really looking for with meditation is something intrinsic to the nature of consciousness that you can rely on as a foundation for well-being no matter what's happening, you know, before anything changes. You know, is there a way to feel the sadness you've been feeling for the last 10 minutes to suddenly recognize it as an appearance in consciousness that is okay? Your well-being in that moment isn't predicated on somehow getting rid of the thing that is there, you know, physiologically or, or perceptually or as a matter of concepts. Anyway, that's, that's a memory of a past retreat. Thanks. Um, hi, Sam. I'm a, a huge fan um, to the point that my husband's jealous when I'm... <laughs> um, you, while I read your first two books and after finishing the first one, um, I couldn't help but think that perhaps um, how seriously would you take the idea of... Um, you know, humans being so obsessed with themselves and humanism and all that, um, of phasing out the, the human race. Um, I know it's... <laughs> uh, or, or, or at least reducing the, the human population through maybe um, birth control or... Uh, well, you know, as they say... To a manageable... Some of my best friends are human. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I wouldn't like the human race to be phased out anytime soon. Uh, we've done some good things also. We are not, we are not all bad. Um, and given the fact that we are here, we need to deal with our weaknesses and, and our problems and not just to, to, to wish them away. So, yeah, as, as a species, we've done some terrible things to other animals, to the ecological system as a whole, and, and also to ourselves. So we definitely need uh, to do better. But I don't think we are a particularly mean or evil or cruel species. We are just far more powerful. Uh, if you gave nuclear wars and, and sorry, nuclear weapons and so forth to chimpanzees, I'm not sure the world will be in a much better place. Uh, we, are, we are just far more powerful. It's, it's a bit like the difference between children and adults. Many people have this vision of, of children as being very good and innocent and so on. And this is not true. They can be extremely mean. But they are usually, they are not very powerful. So the kind of, of damage that they can cause is much more limited. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. So I'm originally from Brazil and uh, we have an election coming in three weeks there. And the guy who's leading the election is very much a Trump-like character mm. who is being opposed in very much the same way that Trump was opposed to here. Very inefficient way, a lot of people refusing to debate, really, uh, that side of the turf. Very concerning for all of us who are from there. Only last week here we saw the Bannon versus New Yorker uh, situation. I'm curious on your opinion on where do we draw the line between, you know, giving some people who are not civil at all and giving them the stage versus engaging people who we truly disagree with, but we need to engage with somehow, mm -hmm. otherwise we risk facing even worse consequences. Hey, it's very difficult to draw the line, but ideally, I mean, for a society to hold together, 
Um, and I'm, I'm not familiar with the particular situation in, in, in Brazil, but generally speaking, um, if a society is, is, is to continue functioning, it needs, you need the ability to talk to most of your neighbors and colleagues and, and family members. And this is also true of, of, of the United States. And um, one of the, for instance, I, maybe I'll speak about the United States because I know the situation here a, a bit did, better. Did you follow the controversy with the New Yorker invitation to Steve Bannon? And, and... No, no, okay. no, not okay. at all. Okay. But uh, again, generally speaking, if you reach a point when all conversation uh, fails, then the society is already so divided that democracy can't really work. I mean, as I said in the very beginning, democracy is not kind of a, a, a panacea that it works everywhere, anytime. It needs some basic conditions to function. It needs certain technologies, it needs a certain level of education, and it needs a certain level of consensus. Unfortunately, you cannot... Democracy, if, if you have a situation when there is no consensus about the most fundamental values of a society, a democracy cannot function there. Democracies function only when you have this initial condition of consensus about the basics. And then you can build democracy on that. But if you don't have this initial condition, then democracy cannot really function. Then it goes either in the direction of civil war, or in the direction of, of separation, or in the direction of dictatorship, but it just doesn't work. And this is also why one of my fears uh, for what is happening now in, in the US is uh, uh, reaching a point when the, there is simply no consensus even on the basics. And for example, I'm very concerned about the, the, the calls for impeachment of, mm. of Trump. And especially, say, if the Democrats uh, uh, win the Congress in the coming elections, which is a big if, but if, I'm very concerned if there is a strong movement for impeachment, because if this succeeds, you will have a very significant part of the U.S. population which will lose all faith in the system. Now, you can say whatever you want about Trump and about his supporters, but they are still part of society, they are still the, the, the neighbors, the colleagues, the family members in, in, in some cases. And if it reaches a point when, say, I don't know, 25%, 30% of the American population just loses their basic trust in the system, we finally got our men in, mm. and the system kicked him, kicked him out, they, they will lose all trust. So it's a very, very dangerous uh, yeah, but, situation. But what you're describing there is a kind of hostage crisis. So you can have a political movement which just announces that it's sufficiently crazy that it's going to... I mean, it's, it's, it's basically, we're talking about a, a, a suicide bombing. It's like, mm -hmm. like, you can't reason with me. If you don't give me what I want, you know, I'm going to blow the whole thing up. I mean, if ever there were someone who advertised the need for some impeachment mechanism, it is someone like Trump. But the, but, the, but the idea that he has supporters who are so hard to talk to on this topic, right, mm -hmm. for the, with respect to the reasons why, you know, he, he should come under this scrutiny, 
the system is already broken down. If the, but if the system is already broken down, if you've, you've already reached that point, then there is nothing, there is nothing to be done. Right. But, then, I mean, but I mean, to be motivated by that fear is to admit that the system is broken, right? Like you're like, if you're no, saying, I mean, again, the key issue is, is trust. Uh, human, large scale human systems, at bottom, they run on trust. And, and this brings us back to the beginning of, of, our, of our talk today about stories and fictions and so forth. Like something like the dollar runs on trust. And also entire nations. At bottom, if, you, if there is no longer trust, then the only thing that can work is an authoritarian regime or it breaks down into civil war or something right. like that. And... Uh, we, we need to make every effort. If there is still some trust, better preserve it than engineer a situation in which a significant part of the population loses all trust. Now, I, I'm not an expert on U.S. politics or U.S. sociology. Maybe, maybe it's beyond that point. Mm. Maybe too, too big a percentage of the population has already lost trust. And well, then it's, it's very bad news. The, the first part of your question is an interesting piece there because, so what happened for those who weren't following it was that the New Yorker, David Remnick of the New Yorker invited Steve Bannon to the New Yorker Festival, was planning to interview him on stage, and if you know anything about David Remnick, you know he's no pushover. I mean, that would have been a very hard-hitting interview. But the reaction by the people who hate Steve Bannon, both among the New Yorker readers and people who would attend the festival and fellow speakers at the festival, was so hysterical that Remnick and the New Yorker, and also staff members of the New Yorker, Remnick and the New Yorker immediately backpedaled and disinvited Steve Bannon from the festival. And I mean, so this was the worst pot, I mean, this was like the most spectacular own goal on the left ever. I mean, it's like, it's one thing to score an own goal, but it's another thing to do it with a bicycle kick and to stand up and, you know, put your hands up there. Uh, I mean, it was awful. Now, you, you can certainly question the wisdom of having invited Steve Bannon in the first place. I mean, that, that's a legitimate judgment call. But the idea... I mean, he's not a marginal figure. This is a person who has had immense influence over our politics. It's not like inviting some random neo-Nazi and giving him a platform that he wouldn't otherwise have. And there is a, there's a legitimately interesting and important conversation to have with someone like Steve Bannon. And the idea that the left and the New Yorker staff and the, and the fellow contributors to that festival had so little faith in the power of conversation and the power of someone as educated and as laser-focused as David Remnick to have his side of the conversation, the fact that there's so little faith that good ideas could triumph over bad ones, or even just expose bad ones for an audience to see, that was the, the most depressing thing of, the, of that whole episode. So. Thank you. Uh, first off, thank you both for being here. And for uh, those who work in the technology space, like myself, um, it's great to have brilliant thinkers thinking about these problems and discussing them publicly and raising awareness of some of these you know, things that we've been thinking about for a long time. Um, regarding AI specifically, there's a view that many of us have uh, that we don't hear echoed very often. And uh, uh, it's possibly because it's kind of further out and takes deeper thinking to get to. But it's one that says that uh, there are three possibilities 
right? One is that we die. Every human is, you know, humans are gone. Two is that AI comes into its own and, and we become, you know, useless at some point. Uh, and three is that we find some way of um, merging with it in, in a meaningful way, mm -hmm. right? And I haven't really heard anyone provide a, a, an alternative to those, not in our current, you know, reality at least. Do you have another view that I've not heard? Or if you agree with what I said, which, I mean, uh, why aren't we talking about that? Like, well, about where are we going to end up and how we get there? Mm -hmm. um, I think that the, the AI revolution, in essence, is really unstoppable. It's not like we're going to stop all research and development of artificial intelligence. And it is going to, to get better and better. And it is going to outperform humans in more and more tasks and jobs and so forth. But what will be the consequences of that? It's very hard to tell. Again, there are some utopian scenarios and there are dystopian scenarios and, and, and nothing here is, is, is inevitable. Another point is that you can have all the scenarios at the same time. We are in the habit of speaking in the first person plural, we. But this is one of the biggest questions of all. Are we still we? Maybe humankind is about to split into different groups, really different species maybe, with different futures. Some people will benefit immensely, economically, politically, biologically, from this revolution. And some people will be left completely behind and may lose everything, it may, it may even become extinct. And when it goes to like the, the practical questions, like, what should I teach my kids? Depends where you live. In some places, you should teach your kids uh, uh, to, to write code and play the violin. If you live elsewhere, you had better teach your kids how to shoot a Kalashnikov. So maybe there is no we. Again, this is one of the, of, of the biggest dangers that we face as humankind, that we are about to disappear as, as a we and split into really different groups or even species with different futures. Here. Um, I'm sorry to say this is the penultimate question, so thank, thank we're you out both. of time. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. Um, my question revolves around a return to the topic of identity that we talked about previously. Um, recognizing the need to sort of layer a new global or national identity onto the ones we have in order to best answer the pressing questions of humanity for the next 50 years. Um, Francis Fukuyama came out two days ago with a, a book about identity politics where he argues mm -hmm. that um, identity politics is sort of an offshoot of the need for basic human recognition. He argues that identity politics is here to stay. Um, how do you then rec reconcile the human identity politics aspect? Um, how, do you recognize, how do you reconcile the downward spiral of identity politics recently in the West's political dis discourse towards the ever fragmenting um, uh, society, towards the need for a new identity in order to solve these problems? And do you think this is possible um, without some sort of mass human catastrophe before the survivors figure mm -hmm. out that they need to cooperate? Well, identity was always a major issue in, in politics. It's definitely not a new thing. And things are... And I'm a long-term historian, and originally I was a medievalist, 
So always compare things to how it was in the Middle Ages or how it was thousands of years ago, and usually the comparison is, is in our favor. As bad as things look now, they were much, much worse. In the Middle Ages or in the Stone Age, uh, back then you had like the hundred people who were human, and the entities on the other side of the hill, they were not even human. So uh, we are in a better situation. Uh, despite the recent upsurge of nationalism and tribalism and, and so forth, we are still far more cooperative today than in any previous time in history. If you think, to take a non-political example, if you think, for example, for about the World Football Cup in Russia a couple of months ago, so we got, we as the human species, we got Argentinians and Japanese and French together in Russia playing games together. This is absolutely mind-blowing for me as a medievalist. I try to think, well, what would it have taken to organize something like that a thousand years ago? It would have been absolutely impossible, not just because people in Eurasia didn't know even that America existed, and you did not have airplanes and ships to bring everybody together, but there was no single game that all people around the world play and can agree on common rules. The fact that, you know, Japanese and Argentinians can agree on the rules for football, um, this, I think, is, is a wonderful sign of the ability of human beings to go beyond. And, you know, and I, I give this example because the World Football Cup and, and the Olympics and so on, they are often understood or depicted as tribal and national celebrations with all the flag wavings and, and, and all the nation against nation, but they are actually an amazing display of cooperation and agreement uh, between humans that give me at least some hope. So, I'm sorry, this has to be the last one. This question is mostly for Sam, since, uh, you, I mean, you both have a lot of experience with meditation, but given your background in neuroscience, I was wondering to what extent do you think that the maximum amount of benefit someone can get from meditation is dictated strictly by their particular neuroanatomy, and how, if at all, could we go about potentially testing for that scientifically? Well, my opinion on this isn't born of the current neuroscience. I mean, we, we are testing this neuroscientifically, and there's, there's a, now a fair amount of data on meditation and how the far outliers differ at, at the level of neuroanatomy and neurophysiology from people who just who, who are novices. I mean, so they take people who have learned to meditate in, in, in a paradigm over eight weeks and compare them to, to controls who are not meditating at all, but then they compare those people to people who've spent 10 or 20 or even 50,000 hours in meditation. And there are, are differences that have been characterized, but I think you can understand the benefits of it without worrying about where you or anyone else sits on the spectrum of talent or you know, good luck with respect to whatever, whatever the, the variables are that dictate someone's abilities there. I mean, it's a little, it's a little bit like physical exercise. I mean, we, we know physical exercise is good for you wherever you are on the spectrum of genetic gifts and environmental auspiciousness, right? So even if you're in prison, in solitary confinement for your misdeeds, and you've got bad genes, right? We know that it would be good for you to exercise for a variety of reasons. 
you'd feel better, you'd be healthier, you'd, it's just, and even if you have certain injuries that you have to work around, so it's not straightforward to say, well, you know, this, this specific exercise is good for you because you're, you know, you've got a bum shoulder, say. There's still a workaround, and there's this general principle that it's kind of a use-it-or-lose-it principle to your physical body, and, and exercise is a, a net good for almost anyone in any situation. And there is, there is that component with meditation. It's not like, I mean, there are people who have various psychological conditions where you certainly wouldn't say, go on silent retreat for a month. This is going to be the, the greatest month of your life. Right? There are people who shouldn't do that. But it is just a fact that most of our suffering, you know, if not all of our you know, real suffering, is the product of us being lost in a story we're telling ourselves. You know, about, about what just happened or what will happen. I mean, all of our anxiety and our regret and our self-concern and uh, you know, just, just the, the fact that we are, we're in a dream. We're, most of us are in a dream, a waking dream, every moment of our lives. And, and unless you're, you're especially lucky, this dream has a, has a negative character much, if not most of the time. And part of this dream is trying to find reasons that are good enough to just surrender to the present moment and locate your well-being here. If you could line up all the variables, you know, it's, it's, it's your birthday and all your friends are coming over and you're, you know, you've got your health and you've got your wealth and you've been looking forward to this for, for a month and planning it and everyone shows up and the food is right and the drinks are right. You've been looking forward to this and you're getting, you're gathering all the variables together and then you just Presumably, that's a moment where you can say, aha, this is it, the present moment is good enough. And yet, as a matter of our attention, we're always missing the present moment because we're finding something that's not quite right. We're, we're talking to ourselves. We can, we're struggling to even understand what our best friend is saying to us because our mind is wandering. We haven't trained our minds in any way that allows us to finally arrive in the present. And extreme cases aside... Virtually everyone benefits from being able to notice the difference between being lost in thought and being simply aware of the sensory emotional display in consciousness in, in the present, right? Just, just, just being able to, if, until you've noticed that distinction, and this, this distinction goes by the name of mindfulness, until you notice that there's an option to break the spell of, your, of the conversation you're having with yourself and just be present, you are by definition a hostage of whatever thoughts are going to come all day long. And when you see how thoughts derange your life, you know, angry thoughts make you angry, and then you say angry things, and then you're the angry guy in relationship with people who now no longer like you, right? And all of the consequences play out. It is an, it's a superpower to be, to be given a choice to just not be angry in the next moment, right? Just to notice, let that thought go, and let that, this cascade of you know, the neurophysiological signature of anger just go. We need not await the deliverances of a future science of the mind that tells us exactly what the differences are between people that account for differences here and, and why it's good for us or, or not. It's, it is a lot like exercise. And you know, 100 years ago, we knew exercise was good for us without knowing the physiology. So that, uh, I'm sorry how, that that was as long-winded as it was, but... Um, <laughs> We're now past the point of, of no return. I have to say goodnight to all of you. Uh, this, please thank you all for showing up. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank, Thank you. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website. at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you'll also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.